Hello to everyone out there. My name is Adam, and you are listening to Disqualified. The last time on the podcast, we looked at the resurrection of Lazarus. I said that the glory of God is more valuable than life, and that sometimes we have to walk through suffering in order to see and treasure the glory of God in our lives. Sometimes God lets us experience pain and heartache in order to reveal to us that he is enough. Additionally, we saw the hope of every Christian in the story of Lazarus. Someday the Lord will come and restore his creation. Even our bodies will be raised imperishable, and we will live and reign with Christ on a recreated earth. This time we will look at the response of the religious leaders and God's power even in their sin. I'm glad you're listening. If you have a Bible, I'll be reading from the second half of John chapter 11. Please join me in verse 45. This is my wooden translation from the original Greek, so please check me later against the translation of your choice. Therefore, many of the Jews, having come to Mary and having seen what he did, believed in him. However, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together a council and asked, What are we to do? For this man does many signs. If we let him alone like this, all the people will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away from us both the place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest of the same year, said to them, You do not know anything, nor do you consider that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. This now he said not from himself, but being high priest of the year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but so that also the children of God, having been scattered, might be gathered together into one. Therefore, from that day, they took counsel together so that they might kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked among the Jews publicly, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness, to a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the region before the Passover so that they might purify themselves. They were seeking Jesus and were saying among themselves, standing in the temple, Does it not seem to you that he will come to the feast? Now the Pharisees and chief priests had given a command that if anyone should know where he is, that one should report it in order that they might seize him. The word of the Lord. Remember, Jesus had just told a dead man to come alive and he said it in front of a large group of people. I can imagine no more powerful a sign than seeing a dead man live. John testifies that many people were totally convinced by this sign that Jesus is the Messiah, but others were not so convinced. Some might ask, how can one see such a miracle in doubt, much less turn Jesus into the authorities? Remember, in John chapter 10, John records Jesus' teaching that he came to call his sheep, Those who are not sheep cannot come to Jesus. They are kept from belief by their own commitment to their own advancements and interests. There will be those for whom no miracle will be enough to soften their hearts. Some of them went to the religious leaders and reported Jesus for raising a dead man. Instead of turning from their religion and power, a common temptation for those in power, they sought to stop Jesus. They thought that if they let Jesus continue doing signs and miracles, the whole nation would turn to him. And if Rome heard that there was a Messiah figure among the Jews, the religious leaders feared that Rome would come and lay waste to Israel. They wouldn't be allowed to live and worship in the land that God had given them. 
Oftentimes, people forget that the gifts of God are protected by the power of God. We feel like we have to protect what God has given us at all cost, instead of trusting all things to our good and gracious God. Remember, the religious leaders believed that God intended to restore them back to their glorious past. They wanted a king like David to kick out the Romans and bring them back to political worldly power. They had no desire for a king who would rescue them from their bigger enemies of sin, death, and the devil, who would be himself their restoration to God, who would bring them out of their exile, not politically, but spiritually. The king that God had given would be the great last Adam. He would obey where Adam disobeyed. He would bring his people back into true communion with God. The high priest, Caiaphas, interjected that the religious leaders don't know what the wise thing to do is. The apparent wise thing to do was to kill Jesus to prevent Rome from coming and wiping out the people of God. This is an example of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says, protect my interests, protect my safety, protect my name. If I do X, God will do Y. The religious leaders felt like it was their job to protect the plan of God. Sometimes God thwarts our plans to remind us that God isn't tame. He's not our personal genie. He doesn't bow to our wills, and he expects our wills to bow to his. We can't obligate God to fulfill our plans. There have been many times in my life where I did things in order to try to force God to act. God is good, but he's not a tame lion. He rules the universe according to his goodness, kindness, and will. As a famous pastor and theologian has remarked, there isn't a rogue molecule in all of the universe. Every dancing dust speck is moving and existing by God's decree. Every drop of water in the ocean is wet because the Lord, every millisecond, is desiring that it remain so. Other times, God works within our worldly wisdom to accomplish his own purposes. Sometimes he takes our rationalizations for evil and turns the events we intended for our own purposes and blossoms them into a wondrous manifestation of his immeasurable goodness and grace. We see the latter in our text today. John records that Caiaphas' rationalization that Jesus should die for the nation was not merely human wisdom. Jesus' death is the plan of God to both redeem Israel and to rescue the nations from destruction. By dying, Jesus will draw out from every tribe, tongue, and nation a people into the kingdom of God. John records that the Passover of the Jews was near. I don't think this statement was meant to simply mark off time. Remember, generically, the Gospels are not news reports. They're not designed to tell us what happened and when. They are designed to draw us to faith in the Messiah. They are designed to reveal Jesus' person and work. I believe John tells us this so that we, the readers, would tie Jesus' death to the Passover. For those of us who did not grow up hearing Old Testament stories, the Passover marked a time when Yahweh rescued his people from slavery and oppression through a mighty act of violence. God sent the destroying angel to kill the firstborn of Egypt. Upon finding all the firstborns dead, the Egyptians all but escorted Israel from beyond their borders. The death of Jesus is analogous to the Passover in at least three ways. Number one, God uses the death of a firstborn to redeem his people from slavery. In the death of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, God frees his people from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Remember, Christians teach that Jesus was not created. There was no time when he was not. 
So what does St. Paul mean when he calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation? The cultures in which the Bible was written practice something called primogeniture. Primogeniture means that the firstborn has the rights to all the inheritance. I believe this text means to teach us that Jesus has the rights to inherit all that the Father has. Namely, Jesus has the right to inherit the whole of creation, everything visible and invisible. When God the Spirit united you to Jesus, he guaranteed that you will share in the Son's inheritance. Not only are you free, you have been adopted into the family of God and had been given the most full inheritance in the universe. If you feel lost, lonely, and impoverished, you can rest in the Messiah, for in him you will gain the universe. 2. God is forever just. He doesn't wink at sin. Sin is treason against the Father and our Creator. It is preferring to dine with the devil rather than submitting to the God who is. When we rebel against the source of life himself by sinning against him, we forfeit our rights to life. You can't have God's stuff without God. Sin leads to death. The ancient Israelites were rescued from the destroying angel by painting their doorpost with the blood of an innocent and spotless lamb. If you want to be free, you must come under the blood of another. In the death of Jesus, he substituted his blood for yours. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed us white as snow. Jesus stays hidden from the religious leaders, not because he was afraid, not because he was avoiding death. He has the authority to lay his life down when everything is accomplished. He has a few more things to teach his disciples. We'll get into one of those next week. So what's the takeaway? Number one, we're often tempted to try to take God's plan into our own hands. We're often tempted not to trust him with our redemption. Some of us try to obligate God through rule-keeping. We think that if we're good enough people, at least better than our neighbors, God will look favorably upon us and will give us what we want. But God is too good for that to work. He's perfect. His goodness is perfect. On our best days, our goodness can only be relative. We can be better than our neighbor, better than the rapist, child molester, or murderer. We can be better than those who cheat on their spouses or abuse their children but we can never be perfect. Apart from Christ, even our good deeds fail to impress our good and perfect God. Our motives will be self-serving, and our actions will be marked with attempts to increase ourselves. In Christ, we have been free to try to follow God's law, not to get anything from God, but to demonstrate our belief that He is who He says He is and enjoys what He says He enjoys. We can live by the power of the Spirit in righteousness, not to obligate God, but to say to Him and the rest of creation that He is better. Our hope, confidence, love, and desire for beauty is found in Him. 2. God is so good and so powerful that He can even turn evil to serve His good and eternal purposes. Nothing can thwart our God. Come behold the works of God, the nations at His feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. The oceans roar, he is the Lord. Though the earth gives way and the mountains move into the sea and the nations rage, I know my God is in control. 3. God is not only sovereign or omnipotent, he is forever good. His plan is for our good. He will work for our eternal good at extreme cost to himself. He gave us the Son for our redemption. 
Why do we doubt that he will not give us anything else we need for our salvation? We can trust him. 4. Jesus is the great Passover lamb. Under his blood we are free from slavery to sin and death. Come to him in faith. Be united to the Savior by faith. If you do not know that you know him, pray that the Spirit would quicken your heart to see and savor the Lord Jesus. Ask the Father to give you eyes to see and ears to hear the call of the Messiah. Pray that the Spirit would show you Jesus. 5. Christians celebrate this new Passover in the sacrament of Holy Communion. In communion, we take in the life of Christ for our sustenance. We proclaim His life for ours and receive for ourselves God's eternal grace. If you don't go to a church that practices regular, preferably weekly, communion, encourage the leaders to feed Christ to you. Thanks for listening. This is Disqualified.